This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to More Than Amused podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts, hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Hello, everyone, and welcome to More Than Amuse. I'm Stani. And I am Sadie. And welcome back. Today, I will be covering a new artist, an artist from the pop art movement. And I think this is our first pop art artist, right? I think so. Besides, like we talked about a few of them last week, Mm -hmm. but we haven't done like a full episode on pop artists yet. I know. So I'm excited. So I'm just going to jump right into what I learned about the pop art movement, if that's okay. Do we have anything Mm -hmm. else we need to mention? I don't think so. Well, I realized as I was doing my research how perfectly this goes along with our episode from last week, honestly. I Mm -hmm. looked up women of the pop art movement or sexism in this movement, and it was happening right during the 60s and 70s, right when the feminist art movement was being Mm -hmm. brought up and was its main time, I guess, or when it was being started. Anyways, the article brought up Judy Chicago. It brought up a lot of the artists that we talked about as far as like, you know, what women were doing around that time to come back sexism Mm -hmm. and things like that and then another tie into last week's episode I mentioned the book it's the short story of women artists by Susie Hodge and I actually found the person we're talking about today by the way her name is Pauline Body I feel like that's important for me to mention but she has a whole section here called the pop art section and the painting that's featured is Pauline Body. And I don't know if she's necessarily like the most famous woman pop artist all around, but she was a founder of the British pop art movement and it was pretty much the only female painter in the British wing of the movement. Mm-hmm. So that's like her significance in the movement is the fact that she pretty much like literally was the only woman doing this in Britain. So pretty significant. I want to just read this little thing from the book and then I'll dive into a little bit about the pop art movement. And then of course, we'll talk about her and her life. This book starts by saying, erasing boundaries between so-called high and low culture, pop art was bold and irreverent, often blending commercial and fine art techniques and materials. Evolving after World War II, in both London and New York, it was inspired by the growth of consumerism, while in America, it was also a reaction against abstract expressionism. Although the movement was male-dominated, there were several, largely unacknowledged, of course, um, (laughs) female pop artists. Predominantly linked to the development of feminism, they often addressed male attitudes towards women and explored notions about female sexuality. So that ties in, like I said, pretty directly with just the feminist art movement that we talked about last week, where you know, right around the 60s and 70s. And this is just kind of a branch of that. And the painting Mm. that is featured in this book is called The Only Blonde in the World. And it is a painting of Marilyn Monroe. 
Um, But what I loved was it describes this as like she was one of the few women and artists to present a different view of Marilyn Monroe at the time. This painting, it's deliberately ambiguous. It's not like revealing in the ways that, you know, Marilyn Monroe is. It's not sexy. She's just like a Marilyn Monroe walking down the road and of course, it's, you know, it's pop art. So it's a little unique with the colors around it. But I anyways, this. I know I do, too. And yeah, this is like a completely different way of looking at Marilyn. Yeah. And I'll talk about it, too. Like what Pauline did is she would like sexualize famous men like Elvis and things like that. But then with the women, I think she would be the one to like not overly sexualize them in her paintings That's and her funny. works of them. So anyways... So as far as just pop art in general, I got a lot of this info for the state of the arts from mainly two places. One was just from Tate.org about the UK pop art scene. Then there was an article from artsy.net called 11 female artists who left their mark on pop art. And I kind of got their little blip about it as well. So those are the two references if you're interested in going to check out the full article because obviously we'll just be summing it up. So pop art, like most art mediums was a bit of a boys club that emerged in the 1960s. The huge names of the art pop movement were Andy Warhol, Tom Wesselman, and the they were definitely seen as like the male like art genius. Like I mentioned, this emerged post-World War II. I liked how the book summarized it up really well, where it was like the combination of high art and low art, but also using the symbols in mass media and putting them in the art. Yeah, if you think of like really famous pop art pieces, it's like the multicolored picture of Marilyn Monroe by Mm -hmm. Andy Warhol or like the Campbell soup cans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like advertising mixing all of a sudden with fine art. Something I thought was interesting too, that it was also like a revolt against high art. Young artists felt that what they were taught at art school and what they saw in museums didn't have anything to do with the lives or the things they saw around them every day. And so instead they turned to sources such as Hollywood movies, advertising, product packaging, pop music, and comic books for their imagery. So that is yeah. such an interesting thing. Feeling uninspired by you yeah. know the high art. And I guess I mean, okay. I don't want to say this wrong. I'm not here to romanticizing the 60s because I hate it when people do that. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel like, you know, like it mentioned, this was a post-World War II. Suddenly Mm -hmm. it's Hollywood's golden age right around this time. Movies, like, you know, all the glitz glamour that was definitely over glamorized. Like, of course, that's going to be something that you're going to want to draw inspiration from. I think. Yeah, no, I agree. And especially considering that, like, they didn't have anything like that. Like, abstract expressionism was the most, like, the closely related to their part of modern art. But, like, Mm I don't know. It's it's weird to imagine a world without pop art because it's so integrated into like popular media and mass yeah. culture. Mm-hmm. That yeah, of course it was very needed. They didn't have anything like that before then. Yeah, so, and I also loved cool. something I read too that like these artists were less focused on like personal what's the word personal expression and like having Mm. this be about like them expressing their attitude like their own emotions and things like that and just more on yeah just painting cool things that they were seeing around them which I definitely understand that and there was a difference between the American scene versus the British scene but early pop art in Britain was fueled by still American popular culture, but kind of like obviously more viewed as from a distance, while the American artists were very much inspired by what they were living because 
you know, that was within their culture. So, yeah. you know, then we have Pauline Body doing Marilyn Monroe, but maybe putting a different spin on it because she's viewing this culture from literally across the ocean. And then as far as like a difference between Britain, the movement was more academic, I guess, in its approach, but also employing irony and parody. It focused more on what American popular imagery represented and its power in manipulating people's lifestyles, which I thought was interesting. So maybe like the difference between American and British from my understanding was maybe the American pop art was more of like, yeah, this is what we're about and I'm going to paint it as like a way to rebel against the high art. And then Britain was like, here's our way to like almost have commentary on American, you know, consumerism and imagery. I don't know. That's just from my take on it, from what I was reading. No, I like that. Of course, though, women in pop art. I love this paragraph from that article I mentioned, the 11 female artists of pop art. This said, for female artists participating in the movement, cultivating a persona as a so-called serious artist seemed like the only way to succeed. What I thought was interesting was an alternative strategy was to often cheekily critique pop art and its workings from the inside out. But in many cases, though, these strategies were interpreted as playing by the rules rather than challenging them. And more often than not, these routes fail to reward female artists with a lasting place in the mainstream. Now, however, with the nuances of their practices better understood, female artists from around the globe are gaining more recognition for their contributions and challenges to pop art. Basically, it was just very difficult for women to get in this scene to be you know, taken seriously in it, which is funny because pop art was supposed to be almost like a counterculture to the high art movement. Yeah. So it's always annoying to me that when like, I don't know, people try to create these spaces that are like for the, I don't want to say oppressed, but you know, for the misunderstood artists that don't want to go to art school and don't want to make the high, high highbrow art, but yet then they're still being exclusionary, which is just I feel like always how it ends up working. They create a counterculture, but then don't allow anyone that actually doesn't belong in mainstream culture to be a part of it. (laughs) Exactly. So they don't even realize that they're just still being mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. You You know, it's funny when I took, I don't remember what art class it was, but we did an art history class. And when we went over pop art, of course, we did like all of the main male pop artists. And then when Mm -hmm. we got to the end of the unit, the teacher said there was actually a lot of women in pop art, but none of them are in the textbook. So here's like a couple that you can look at and go through their art before we move on to the next unit. If you want to, he wasn't allowed <laughs> to require it because it wasn't a part of like the official oh, of curriculum, the curriculum. but he felt so bad about the fact that women were completely like completely written out of the pop art movement in the United States and like mm. Britain. Cause they were yeah big part of it like they were pauline like body was literally a founder of the british Mm -hmm. pop art movement like yeah a founder women in the united states and britain that were creating it they just like they weren't weren't included yeah they weren't included at all so i thought it was really nice of him to do like that sub like here you go and i don't know how many people clicked on it i did because of course Mm -hmm. i was like uh, yes I yeah want to know the women. <laughs> like I am on my way I will be looking that up <laughs> yeah. thank you but yeah it's kind of annoying that they completely leave out women in the pop art movement yeah when obviously they were such a big part of it and mm-hmm. uh, I mean we'll talk about it I won't give it away but we'll talk about yeah. just the ways that women are just I'm like why does this always happen and you'll see what I mean anyways mm-hmm. let's talk about Pauline 
So, like I mentioned, she was the founder of the British pop art movement and the only female painter in the British wing of the movement. Her paintings and collages often demonstrated a joy in self-assured femininity and female sexuality and expressed overt or implicit criticism of the quote-unquote man's world in which she lived. Her rebellious art combined with her free-spirited lifestyle has made Body a herald of the 1970s feminism. So again, just right on brand with what we talked about last week. And looking through her paintings, like you can see that she literally has a painting called Man's World where (laughs) I love it so much. Like if you just look up Man's World, but it has images of just all these famous men. There's Albert Einstein, there's Elvis and in it all. And anyways, very good piece of art. Oh, nice. Pauline was born in a suburban London in 1938 to a Catholic family. She was the youngest of four children and she had three older brothers and apparently a pretty strict father who, (laughs) this quote made me laugh, who made her keenly aware of her position as a girl. So sounds like there was a bit of, you know, sexism going on. Just a little bit. Yeah. In 1954, she actually won a scholarship to the Wimbledon School of Art, and she actually attended despite her father's disapproval of it. But her mom, on the other hand, was supportive because herself was an artist who had been denied by her parents permission to attend a school of art herself. So that I know I love that she was able to at least pay it forward. And it's sad, too, because who knows the artist that her mom could have been. Um, But, you know, she was thankfully very encouraging to her daughter. She earned an intermediate diploma in lithography. Oh, yeah. Mm hmm. What is that again? Hard to explain. <laughs> it's like screen printing kind of, but like oh, okay. not on t-shirts. I'm probably explaining it bad. I think I talked about it in one of our episodes. Okay. You like create like a stencil and then like use ink and stuff to create different things. It's how graphic design used to have to be done mm. for everything. Thank heavens it's not anymore. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's grueling. <laughs> But yeah, so she graduated with her intermediate diploma in lithography and actually a, a national diploma in design in stained glass, Whoa. which I was thinking we should find a stained glass artist. I was thinking about that the other day because I think it is such a cool it's so medium. Beautiful. I yeah. know in our artist spotlights, we've shouted them out who have done uh-huh. it, you know, just on Instagram that we've found, but I'm like, there's got to be a famous woman. I think one of the hard parts with a lot of like historical pieces in churches and stuff, and I think this has happened with like murals and things too before the Renaissance era, Mm -hmm. is that they didn't document who did it because it was just like a part of like your church service. They didn't like write down the artist. So it's hard to find some of the early ones, but I bet we could find some more like modern stained glass artists. That's cool. I thought, yeah, I thought it was so cool that like her start in art was in stained glass encouraged by her tutor named charles carey she started exploring collage techniques and her painting started becoming a little bit more experimental around this time and also what i thought was cool is her work showed an interest in popular culture early on in 1970 one of her pieces was shown at the young contemporaries exhibition after that, she studied at the School of Stained Glass at the Royal College of Art from 1951 to 61. And she had, this is crazy. She had wanted to attend the School of Painting, but she was dissuaded from applying because admission rates for women's were much lower in that department. Mm-hmm. So she decided to go on to do stained glass, which is just like, I mean, she obviously went on to be a, you know, a founder in this painting movement, but it's yeah. still just like, 
it's sad that she didn't get to pursue what she actually that, really wanted like, to. cracks me up. Because can you imagine a guy now being told that he's getting a degree in painting and everyone being like, oh, what a manly aspiration. I know. You yes. Know? Uh-huh. Like, It's funny what? how they switch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, though, at her college, she was one of the stronger students in her class. In 1960, one of her stained glass works was included in the traveling exhibition Modern Stained Glass that was organized by the Arts Council. And she continued to paint, even though that's not what she was studying in school, just on her own in her own flat in West London. And then in 1959, she actually had three more works selected for the Young Contemporaries exhibition. So she's in art school. She's obviously doing very, very well, you know, because as a student, her work is being featured in these exhibitions and things like that. And during this time is when she became friends with other emerging pop artists such as David Hockney, Derek Boschier, Peter Phillips, and Peter Blake. And I think they were like also the founders of this British pop art movement. So, which also goes just a shout out to art school. That is a reason why I love going to art school is you just meet other people who are doing the same thing. There's other ways to meet people, of course, but that was just a benefit. It's an easy one. (laughs) It is an easy way. Yeah. Yeah. Built in friends, really. Anyways. So as far as her personal career, she was definitely at her most productive career wise. Just the two years after graduating from college, she developed her signature pop style and iconography during this time her first group show that was blake body porter and reeve was held in november 1961 at the aia gallery in london and was hailed as one of the first british pop art shows so from the very beginning like her and all of her college friends you know basically just boosting up this movement she exhibited 20 collages including is it a bird is it a plane and a rose is a rose is a rose which demonstrated her interest in drawing from both high and low popular culture sources in her art and uh, these ones are i'm gonna just google them again i will invite you to do the same the first one is a rose is a rose is a rose by pauline body Ooh. Mm -hmm. also it's big like it's huge the original one I feel like when you look at art on the internet, it's like easy to be like, oh, wow, cool. But then you like actually see it in the context of like, oh, wow, you know, yeah, like how big, big it is. And suddenly you're like, oh, wow, that's such a grand piece of art. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's huge. Who's the guy? Am I supposed to recognize him? I don't know if I'm supposed to recognize him or not. <laughs> that's OK. Let's find out. Jean-Paul Belmondo. I don't and know. He's a French is. actor. Oh, OK. That's so why I don't know that's who he okay. Is. We don't immediately, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which I guess is, you know, like her interest in the more mm-hmm. niche artwork versus the, you know, more obvious ones. Yeah. Anyways, it's very cool. Moving forward, though, the following spring, her, Peter Blake, Derek Boschier, and Peter Phillips were featured in Ken Russell's BBC monitored a documentary called Pop Goes the Easel, which was aired on March 22nd of 1962. What a weird world where you can make a documentary about a piece of art. I know. Right as it's being made. Uh-huh. And basically, yeah, it's just a portrait of pop artists that mm-hmm. were going on and they were all featured in it. So that's cool. That's but what cool. was interesting about this documentary is her appearance in this actually marked the beginning of a very brief acting career that she had so what? i don't know if she was just so charismatic and lovely in the documentary because it's not that, like she was acting in the documentary mm-hmm. but she had a bunch of really random roles they weren't anything that i've heard of but she landed roles in the armchair theater play by itv called north city traffic straight ahead in 1962 
she did an episode of, of the BB series Magret, Magret? I'm not sure how to say that. Peter the Let, 1963. And she also appeared on stage in Frank Hilton's comedy Day of the Prince at the Royal Court and in Ricardo Argiano's from the novel of Anthony Powell, Afternoon Men at the New Arts Theater. So huh. she does like stage acting at this time, which like I said, I'm like, she Love must that. have killed it in that documentary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're like, hey, come join the mm-hmm. stage. <laughs> like these theater shows and like, you know, a literal BBC series. That's um, crazy. Her acting was actually more lucrative than her painting, but it was more of like a distraction from painting. And so, mm. p- and painting remained her priority. I guess like the men in her life encouraged her to pursue acting because it was more conventional career choice for a woman in the early <laughs> 1960s rather than, you know, to go on and be a yeah. painter. And what I thought was interesting is the popular press picked her up on her glamorous actress persona, often undermining her legitimacy as an artist by referring to her physical appearance. This article from a magazine called Scene, they ran a front page article in November of 1962 that included the following remarks. Actresses often have tiny brains. (laughs) Painters often have large beards. Imagine a brainy actress who is also a painter and also a blonde and you have Pauline body. That is... Which is like such a sexist article. I mean, like, what's funny is I'm like, I think that they think they're complimenting her, you know? But that just sounds so. Also, just like actresses have tiny brains. Like, actually, they don't. And then, like, painters are only allowed to have beards. That's it. So it's like, okay, painters can only be men, actresses Mm -hmm. can only be stupid. Stupid women. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) so can you believe it there is a smart actress who's also a painter and she's blonde can you believe it even pretty what the heck like how can these all exist at once which i yeah i love that they have to mention she's like and she's also a blonde shocking i could never believe that to happen but that's just the craziest thing i've ever heard like i said it's the funniest part is that like they definitely think they're complimenting her yeah just like so many times you've talked about people and they're like oh you paint like a man you play guitar like a man like they think they're giving you a compliment exactly what i was trying to do (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists Okay, so I'm not going to be able to say her name, and I'm sorry. It is Manaz Razadeh, I believe. Her Instagram handle is Masta Manaz. So it's M-O-S-T-A-M-A-N-A-Z. Aha, yes. Yes. She's a French and Afghan artist in San Diego, Ooh. California, and I'm obsessed with her work. <gasps> yeah, me too. It looks like street art. Like you literally have like a cool graffiti, like abstract mural, but then on a canvas instead. And the so colors cool. like that she yeah. chooses. Lots of like neon green and pink and mm-hmm. they're so cool. They're actually not as much as she probably could charge though, to be honest. Oh, really? Um, Yeah. Like a 30 by 30 is 1800 and a 36 by 24 is 1800. So they're about like just over a thousand dollars to the $2,000 range. And I, yeah, definitely. I feel like she could be charging more. Those are yeah. so beautiful. Okay. She has like a really big one, 48 by 24. That's like huge. I do love these. I love the little blue heart one. Oh, like yeah. A down. Yes. Love these. Definitely Just the check texture these out. alone. I feel like when you add a lot of color with a lot of texture and like a lot of different, mm-hmm. you know, like mediums of art, you know, like you can tell she like went in with like a 
pencil or a pen at some points and then like spray yeah. paint with others and it just ends up looking really really cool yeah totally yeah definitely go check her out my yeah, artist sure. spotlight is jennifer coates her it's just jennifer j-e-n-n-i-f-e-r coates is in c-o-a-t-e-s 666 that is her <laughs> instagram handle and her bio just says artist and sleuth which i love and they are just really cool different landscapes like kind of psychedelic landscapes that she has and yeah they're just beautiful she doesn't necessarily have like a website where they're for sale but it does look like it is like it's currently in an exhibition like some of her work So, so cool and it's seems like it's often there's like a, lot, a couple posts on here about you know her art being on display and yeah they're they, just beautiful her paintings look like they should glow in the dark yeah <laughs> like I don't think they do but like they look they like look they like they could they yeah. totally do I yes I know exactly what you mean whoa she has someone back further that are like so freaking detailed I saw a headline too that she posted of like someone calling it unnatural nature post pop landscapes yeah and i think that's I that. an exhibition that she was in she and has I think that one a very good way of describing it that is a perfect way of describing it she has one of like two little people like dancing in the woods called hades and persephone and i want it you're right though it definitely looks like they could glow in the dark that would be cool so yeah go check her out jennifer coates wow both incredible artists mm-hmm. all right now back to the show but oh her obvious unique position as her the only female pop artist, which I even get nervous saying that because I'm like, I'm sure there is some woman out there yeah, who is trying, sure. you know, and who couldn't get in the scene because she obviously like found her in with these boys. She found her yeah. in into the boys club because she knew them from college, you she know, did. like. There was just a way for her to fit into this. So I, I even hate referring to as the only one because I'm like, there's there has to have been others, but they yeah. just obviously aren't being recognized. Mm-hmm. So anyways, she's the I, only that. British recognized pop artist. Recognized. We want to get like a really niche. But yes. <laughs> but so as far as like the topics of her art, her early paintings were very sensual and erotic, celebrating female sexuality from a woman's point of view. Her canvases were set against vivid, colorful backgrounds. And if you look at any of her artwork, like you'll mm-hmm. see that they're all very colorful. But that's also a characteristic of pop art from my understanding. So yeah. What I thought was cool is she painted her idols, Elvis, the French actor Jean-Paul Belmondo, which was the, the is a rose, is a rose, a rose, is a rose, whatever. The British writer Derek Mulrow as sex symbols, just as she did other actresses like Monica Vitti and Marilyn Monroe. But I mean, looking at her Marilyn Monroe painting, like I don't feel like she's being overtly sexualized like she no. is in, you know, the other typical mm-hmm. ways that you would see Marilyn Monroe being yeah i'd say it's actually probably the least sexualized out of the pop art pieces they've seen so Mm -hmm. yeah i agree like andy warhol though she recycled publicity and press photographs of celebrities in her art her 1963 portrait of her friend cecilia burtwell cecilia and her heroes shows the textile designer surrounded by a peter blake painting a david hockney portrait and an image of elvis presley which i thought was cool which Mm -hmm. i love that it's just cecilia and her heroes and what is it but her friend cecilia surrounded by her heroes (laughs) 
<laughs> Love that. And she exhibited in several more group shows before staging her first solo exhibition at Grabowski Gallery in the autumn of 1963. The show was a critical success um, and she continued to take on additional acting jobs. She was a presenter on the radio program Public Ear in 1963 through 64. And the following year, she was typecast yet again as the role, <laughs> quote, the seductive Maria in a BBC serial. So And if you look up pictures of Pauline body, like she kind of is the blonde, like hot girl that you would imagine from like, I don't know, London in the 60s. Yeah. That's not, I don't know. She's very beautiful. Can you believe that? I was like, I was literally just going to say that. Yeah. Can you believe a woman could be smart and pretty? Didn't know it was possible. I mean, I guess miracles happen. In June of 1963, she married the literary agent Clive Goodwin after a 10-day romance, which... 10 days? I know. What was interesting is her marriage, I guess, disappointed others, such as Peter Blake and her married lover, who was the television director, Philip Seville, whom she had met towards the end of her student days and had worked for. Apparently, their affair is said to have provided the material for a screenplay by Frederick Raphael for the movie Darling in 1965. So this woman was like definitely in the scene, right? Because... She knew these, like a literary agent. She was, you know, having an affair. Shows and in movies. Yes. Yeah. She was famous, I would imagine. I don't know if she was like famous that like everyone would know her or if she was just like well known within the scenes. You know what I mean? No, that makes sense. However, Body and Goodwins, her husband, their flat, their apartment became a central hangout for many artists, musicians, and writers, actually including Bob Dylan, whom she actually brought to England. So again, like she obviously um, knows people. (laughs) Just, you know. (laughs) But then also including people like David Hockney, Peter Blake, Michael White, Kenneth Tynan, Troy Kennedy Martin, John McGrath, Dennis Potter, and Roger McGough. So just alive on yeah. the Lower house so this is what i thought was interesting is her husband actually who was later a member of the founding editorial team of the radical journal black dwarf is said to have encouraged her to include political content in her paintings and over time her paintings did become more critical and political countdown to violence depicts a number of harrowing current events including the birmingham riot of 1963 and then also the assassination of john f kennedy and the vietnam war cuba c 1963 references the cuban revolution the collage painting it's a man world like i mentioned juxtaposes images of patriarchal icons the beatles albert einstein lenin muhammad ali marcel proust and other men and then she did a it's a man world too she redisplayed female nudes from fine art and like softcore pornographic sources to signify newly liberated female eroticism and then her last known painting bum B-U-M, was commissioned by Kenneth Tyron for O. Calcutta and was completed in 1966. If you look at if you look at bum, it's definitely that. It's just a picture of a bum and then it sees, you see B-U-M ran across. Yeah, it says I love bum. It. I love yep. the letters like so much. Uh-huh. I love it too. Also, the bum is not very graphic. No. If anyone is wondering. No, it's a cute little bum. <laughs> yeah. it's a nice little bum anyways so her life actually ends so tragically and like it's so sad that i almost didn't even want to do her because i was like i don't want to tell this sad story 
but i mean There's i wanted to tell her story, story. <laughs> i know it always is yeah. but in june of 1965 she actually became pregnant but during a prenatal exam there was a tumor discovered and she was diagnosed with cancer but she actually refused to abort the fetus and then refused to receive chemotherapy treatment because oh, it could have harmed the baby. the baby. Yeah. So apparently she smoked marijuana to ease the pain of her terminal condition. But, but during this time, she continued to entertain her friends and like still did art. Apparently the artwork she did is she sketched the Rolling Stones during her illness. And her daughter Katie was born on February 12, 1966. And she died that year on July 1st. And she was 28 years old only. So very sad. And to make oh it like gosh. even sadder, her daughter Katie died of an overdose when she was like 29 in the 90s. Ugh. So uh, I don't know. It just made me really sad to like hear yeah. that. I mean, obviously she made, you know, she made her choice that she wanted to, she would rather protect her unborn child. And I'm assuming, I don't know for sure. It didn't say it, but I'm imagining it's to the, with the person she was married to. It didn't, you know, it didn't specify that. So I have no idea. But anyway, literally so sad. I know. I like I said, it was like so sad reading that because there's like the hope of like, oh, well, you know, if she kind of did this, maybe, you know, hopefully her daughter's still alive. But her daughter ended up dying too pretty young and pretty tragically. So anyways, oh sorry to like bring in a downer. That's no, OK. So this, she, but Pauline Bodie was how old when she died? 28 only. 28. That is so young. So young. I mean, but like, also she accomplished so much in her short life, which is like incredible. Yeah. But it's also so sad that that's like all the time we had with her and her amazing artwork. Because I think when I was looking up, I was like, oh, I thought that there would be, there would have been more. Mm -hmm. But nope, there's a very key reason why not. She died very young and very tragically. I was a little shocked when you said her last known painting because I was like, wait, what'd she do then? Yeah. (laughs) That's the worst. As far as her legacy is, so this is the thing that always seems to happen with women artists. So Mm -hmm. after her death, her paintings were stored away in a barn on her brother's farm and she was largely forgotten for nearly 30 years. What the heck? Which is confusing to me because I'm like, she was married and yeah. like she was one of the founders of the movement and like had all of these friends who are also in the movement that I imagine continue to make art like it mm-hmm. makes me a little bit disappointed that none of those guys that she had founded this movement with like made the effort to you know preserve it's that. like maybe we should frame some of her paintings in yeah, this museum like, and like I get like technically when she died they probably did rightfully go to family members but like I don't know. I would imagine that if I started this movement with a group of friends and one of them got cancer and died when they were 28, that I'd be like, okay, let's make sure that she's not being forgotten. I don't know. I guess I can't assume worst intentions, but it just makes me so angry that this always happens. Like who else? There was like, even with Emily Dickinson, right? Like Mm -hmm. for years after there was like all these issues with her art coming out, her poems coming out and I don't know. Hilma off Clint. Granted, that was her own choice. But I know. Still. I mean, technically, Emily Dickinson told her sister to burn all of her stuff after she true. died. So, I mean, we wouldn't have had any of it if it was her, if it were her family. <laughs> yeah. That is true. I just, but, yeah, this it's, is, it's just, just so sad. It's hard because it 
it doesn't seem to happen as often with the men who pioneer a movement as it does yes. the women who do. That's what I think is the most shocking is that she literally was a founder and a pioneer of this movement and mm -hmm. whoever was like in these spaces. And it's not like she was unknown. She was, like yeah. I said, it seems that she was very involved in these scenes of the acting world in London and just no one managed to like you know she was written in the press as a painter and no one was like hey let's protect these paintings and make sure they're on display that's such an odd thing i know but her work was rediscovered in the 1990s there was a renewing interest in her contribution to pop art thankfully yeah. um and this gained her inclusion in several group exhibitions and a major solo retrospective and the current location, though, of several of her most sought out after paintings is unknown. So while we do have some of the originals, we're missing others. And I know that, like, they're all over. I think I saw that one of them was in the Smithsonian or something like that. Mm -hmm. So they're at least on display now. There's exhibitions that happen all the time. Like, I even went to her Wikipedia page. And if you just go to the bottom, like, their exhibitions, like, there's some from even 2020, 2013, 2014. Like, every single year, basically, since the 90s she's had yeah. an exhibition and it's been displayed somewhere in the world so that's, oh, that's good, good at least there was just a really big break from the 60s and then there was one yeah. weird like a small one in 1982 and then boom 93 and they're happening almost every year so that's hmm. good at least December of 2013, Adrienne Hamilton wrote in The Independent on Sunday, ignored for decades after her death, it was nearly th 30 years before her first picture was shown. A proper retrospective has had to wait until this year with the show, which originated in Wolverhampton, has now opened in the Pallant Gallery in Chichester. Looking at her pictures today, it is simply incredible that it has taken so long. It's not a big exhibition. Given the paucity of her surviving work, it could not be otherwise, but it is one which leaves you eager for more, more of the pictures she did paint and the ones she didn't live long enough for, which I thought mm -hmm. was a really kind yeah. you know, way to summarize that. There's a really good like New York Times article. They have this series that's called like Overlooked, which is like an obituary series where they highlight people who were, you know, overlooked mm -hmm. at their time of death the article is called overlooked no more pauline body rebellious pop artist and then mm -hmm. i love the subtitle with her daring feminist art and freewheeling lifestyle she personified the cultural scene known as swinging london and yeah she was an artist actress broadcast journalist pauline body and she achieved such brief fame but alas she you know died when she was very young but she made amazing art she brought herself up in literally a man's world painted yeah. about it twice with it's a man's world one mm -hmm. and it's a man's world two and yeah just left an amazing mark on the world of pop art as one of the only british woman pop artists so there's pauline pauline what an icon yeah. And like I said, she's very beautiful. If you look her up, it's very much of like the Pinteresty. Yeah. Like what you would imagine. <laughs> yeah. It's so beautiful. So chic, you know, just it, it's just what you would imagine, like a beautiful blonde woman in London in the 60s working as an artist would look like. It's just it's great. I love it. So I wish there was, you know, more to go on about her. I This episode is shorter just because unfortunately her life story is a bit shorter, but I'm glad that we could tell mm -hmm. her story here and have that continue. And if you're listening, just go look up her work. It really is so beautiful. So lovely. Yeah. She's so colorful. Just, yes, exactly. So colorful. She's I just actually a whole mood. have something we can add on to the little end here. If you're cool, cool with that. Absolutely. 
there's been like some really weird art news headlines lately okay <laughs> that I kept meaning to bring up on here and I kept forgetting I posted about a few of them like my personal Instagram story uh-huh but like there was a guy who to protest climate change went and threw cake at the Mona Lisa in the Louvre oh yeah you see that? I did uh-huh he dressed as an old lady and then went and like threw cake at the Mona Lisa in the middle of the crowd which is confusing to me because first off, I don't know what the Mona Lisa has to do with client cha- climate change. I so mean, if I anyone guess can like, it would. I mean, like, it gets national headlines though. If the Mona Lisa gets messed with, I guess. I guess, but I just thought that was an interesting choice. And then on top of that, like the fact that he disguised himself as an old lady first was also yes. interesting to me because it's not like they ban people from going to see the Mona Lisa. Like, I don't think they have like a criminal watch list. Like, it's mm-hmm. guarded and behind like plated bulletproof glass yes you can't really just like walk you know what i mean like they're not doing anything because so i just thought it was an interesting choice Choice. for him to disguise himself first Mm -hmm. um considering the fact that even though he threw cake at the mona lisa they just wiped it off the glass and arrested him and moved on as normal (laughs) there was no repercussions but then also there's just a bunch of crazy ones this lady stole one of Picasso's jackets from the museum where it was hanging up on a hook really? and took it out of the museum and went and got it tailored to fit her and got it I like mean... cleaned up. And so now it's ruined technically because like it's been modified since yeah. she had it. So it's not in like pristine condition anymore. I think they got it back because they obviously found out that she had tailored it to fit herself. But that was also a very weird choice. I mean, I guess it's pretty iconic if someone's like, where'd you get your jacket from? And you're like, oh, it's literally Picasso's Picasso's. But also, (laughs) how could you ever admit to that? Because obviously that was not allowed. Uh, And then there was like some other really crazy ones. There was a guy who went into like an ancient museum of like Egyptian artifacts and like destroyed a bunch of artifacts because he was mad about his breakup with his girlfriend. Men. Okay. Well, yeah, I don't even know. Like, did she work there? Like, did she have anything? Did she really love the museum? Here like, it is. A man broke up and in, uh, broke into the Dallas Museum of Art and smashed ancient Greek artifacts because he was mad at his girl. Um, okay. <laughs> I mean, that's fine. That's hilarious. He used a steel chair and just started crushing stuff like vases from ancient Greece. Those are freaking old like i what know the heck? that actually makes me really sad yeah but... and it's an estimated value of a million dollars well i bet he's so happy he never learned how to channel his rage correctly right it is just so weird and then i'm trying to remember the other one that i saw i saw one more with more like climate protesters that were oh, okay. gathered outside and did something to a museum which was a weird choice again in my brain because i don't really equate fine art and climate change yeah i don't really but i guess that like maybe like i said i mean if you do something to the mona lisa it's definitely like gonna get the coverage yeah so maybe it's just trying to figure <laughs> out what will get most people talking but this is basically just a psa like please leave the art alone for <laughs> heaven's sakes i mean it's like every day for like a week i saw a bunch of stuff that it was just like gosh it's okay to protest it's okay to be angry yes but. and i'm fine with people like protesting climate change or whatever you want to protest but not for so much sakes. much with the man channeling his rage by destroying ancient artifacts but you know. no or like don't go through cake at the mona lisa that's kind of ridiculous like it didn't really do any harm but like come on 
I love but, that. Just leave the art alone, please. Yeah, just leave it alone. Like, there's plenty of other ways that you can protest. I don't think that that's necessary. Yes. But one of the fun things that's also been happening is a lot of Nazi art. So not, like, made by the Nazis, but art that was stolen by the Nazis during World War II. Oh, okay. Because they, like, took a bunch of stuff. We talked about this in the Maria Premachenko episode because of what's yeah. happening in Ukraine. Like, they passed a bunch of laws after World War II that even in times of war, like, you cannot steal art or damage art mm-hmm. or anything like that because it's more damaging to our entire culture as a whole than, like, yeah. to any one country, which I think is very true and very fitting. But, of course, a ton of art went missing during like the German occupation of European countries. Cause that's where yeah. a lot of the art was like the United States didn't even have that much of an art scene at that point. So like all of the art was kind of over in Europe, in yeah. Europe. but a lot of it is actually coming forward and like being found. Wow. There was this lady who found like a statue, like a bust at like a Goodwill. Wait, <laughs> and really? she took it home. Yeah. Cause she was like, Oh, this is so cool. And took it home. And then she had it sitting in her living room on the table. And then she was like, you know what? Like, I'm going to get this appraised. Like, I don't know how old it is, but it looks like, you know, really cool. Yeah. And I want to know who it's by. So she went and got it appraised. And then immediately, like the guy who was appraising it just goes silent. And then like a whole bunch of people ended up swarming her and she found out that she had a stolen piece of art from clear back in world war two that she had found in goodwill. She bought it for like five bucks and it was worth like $65 million or something (gasps) like that. Like, I'm going to see if I can find the actual amount. I wonder like at that point, do you get to keep it because you bought it from goodwill or like, (laughs) I mean, technically it's stolen. So like, no. So I know that she did end up giving it to the museum because like you would at that point, right. You don't want that in your house. (laughs) That's true. I mean, you are, yeah (laughs) yeah but it did say it was like settled for a unknown amount so like obviously she got something whether or not she actually got like the full-on 65 million dollars yeah okay so she bought it for 35 dollars okay but that's still obviously very cheap yes in a goodwill store in texas it was 52 pounds of texas yeah oh my 52 pound bust that's not light but then she finds it and she is a owner of a buy and resell place. So she goes to Goodwill, mm. buys it for $35, ends up finding out that it depicts an ancient Roman commander dressed as Germanicus. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's dated to the first century and was part of a collection in Germany. Wow. Yeah. And it was on the floor under a table, looked really dirty, and it looked really old. Obviously, it's from the first century. <laughs> like, I'm just like, how, what was that path? Like, I know that it got itself I, like, to Texas. The only thing I can think is that when the war ended, a lot of Nazis fled Germany immediately because they didn't mm. want to be tried for war crimes. And so they took their stuff and went as far as they possibly could, whether that was like South America or somewhere else for a while. Well, obviously their family didn't stay wherever they were for this entire Mm -hmm. time. It's been like quite a bit of time now. Yeah. Um, And so I'm guessing like whoever their descendants were didn't know what it was and just dropped it off at a Goodwill thinking, oh, this old bust, you know, like Like from- You wouldn't know. No, you'd have no idea. Or maybe they did know what it was and they just didn't know what to do with it because why would you want to be like the one? To be like, hi, um, like my grandpa (laughs) stole this. He was a Nazi too, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, like you don't want to be like caught with that. 
Oh my but, goodness. Yeah. I just think it's crazy. So it's going to be in a Texas museum of art for the next year, it looks like. And then they're taking it back to Germany where it belongs. Oh um, my goodness. Yeah. And no idea what she got for anything, but pretty cool, right? So a good contrast. We have art being destroyed found. and also <laughs> art being found. Yes. Yeah. So I guess that's another like PSA. If you have secret Nazi art, like please go drop it off at your nearest Goodwill. Or like, maybe don't because we don't know who's going to appraise it. But go drop it off on the steps of a museum. And- well, I mean, turns out there's a pot- potential like financial benefit for you. Like go get yeah. it appraised, sell it to a museum. Oh, that's crazy. But yeah, so it's a good thing. Like hopefully we'll find more lost art that has been missing forever. Yeah. Because so much of it went missing during World War II. And hopefully everyone will chill out enough that we don't lose more of art, the art we yeah. do have. So, Dang, that's super cool. Well, yeah. I appreciate the segment. Yeah, of course. I just, I keep forgetting to talk about it. And I feel like if anyone appreciates it, it'll be all it'll of It'll be listeners. people who are listening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I 100% agree. Anything else? Nope, that's it. Cool. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in and for listening. We will be back next Monday and every Monday with another episode about women in the arts in one way or another. And Mm -hmm. thanks for listening. And don't forget to check out our Instagram. It's at morethanamuse.podcast. We'll be posting all of Pauline Bodie's work this week. Mm -hmm. So you can go and check that out and make sure you know what we're talking about. Because otherwise you won't be able to see it unless you do all the Googling yourself. Yes, absolutely. Cool. Well, we'll be back next week. Bye. Bye. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.